0: Welcome to The Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Brian Dalek, one of the producers of the show. This week, two brothers, ages 12 and 15, talk about the running streak they've been on for years. Then, in the kick, the secrets of how one Runner's World editor had a breakthrough in the 5K, and what you can learn from her experience. But first, an interview with elite runner Nick Simmons. The two-time Olympian announced in January that he'll retire at the end of this year. But stepping off the track doesn't mean he'll be scaling back his athletic endeavors. Nick spoke with me earlier this year and made it pretty clear he's got some truly big goals on the horizon.
1: Now that running is about to come to an end, I want to go back and and honor that goal that I set for myself when I was a kid and and really start pursuing this, this idea of climbing the tallest mountain on every continent. You know, Everest obviously being the tallest mountain in Asia would be would be the, um, the, the summation of a, of a career of mountain climbing. So it's a lifetime goal. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in two or three years. It will take, um, you know, the better part of a decade to accomplish. Nick
0: has been such an icon in the sport, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this interview with you. Thanks for joining us. With six national championship titles to his name, 800 meter specialist Nick Simmons has one more big goal to chase before he retires at the end of 2017. He wants to earn a spot on the U.S. team and compete in London this August at the World Championships. If he makes a team, it will be a redemption of sorts after a rough 2016 when a broken ankle forced him to miss the U.S. Olympic track trials and potentially his third Olympics. When I spoke with Nick back in February, he explained what it was like to sit out the trials and why he decided to take one final crack at the track before calling it a career. He also shared a few of his post-pro running plans, which include expanding his business RunGum, advocating for his fellow athletes, and catching some really big fish. First thing, I, I just want to step back to last summer, right around the Olympic trials in Eugene, and the story we put up recently about you, your coach Danny Mackey of the Brooks Beast. He said you had 143 potential in the 800 last year. You're in really good shape, um, but right before the trials, broken ankle that takes you out, and that takes you out of a shot at your third Olympic Games in Rio. So. I just want to go back to how your mind was when you're when you're watching the rounds of the men's 800 in Eugene and then later in Rio. Was there something in your gut that was like I should be there? Or how are you feeling mentally at that time?
1: Yeah, it was a kind of a roller coaster of emotions. Um I, I think Danny's maybe too kind. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I had 143 in my legs. I I can guarantee I had 144 in my legs because In 2015 when I won my sixth us title, I, I ran 144 five to do so And the workouts that I was doing leading up to 2016 trials were considerably better um, And I'm, I'm not one to bs. I'll tell you when i'm in shape. I'll tell you when i'm not in shape But last summer I was in fantastic shape so to watch the u.s olympic trials and see that 145 low made the team, it, it, it's frustrating mm-hmm. because I'm like, well, you know, if I'd stayed healthy, then, uh, you know, I, I probably would have been on the team, but in this sport, staying healthy, showing up, uh, without any injuries, that is over 50% of the job. You know, you, you can be a hundred percent fit, but if you're not a hundred percent healthy, you aren't going to make a team. And, and, um, I'm sure I benefited in 2008 and 2012 when I made those Olympic teams from, uh, some veterans who might've been a little bit injured. And, and this, this time around, the, it wasn't in the cards for me. And I was okay with that. You know, I looked down at my 32 year old ankle and I was just grateful that it had taken me to two Olympic games and, and, you know, half a dozen world championships. And instead of being angered at my broken ankle, I just said, all right, ankle, I'm going to rehab you and we'll try again some other time. And that's where I am now. Um, I watched those Olympic finals and was so, you know, Happy for Clayton Murphy to win a medal. It's been so long since an American won a medal in the men's eight at an Olympic Games. And um, Yeah, I just I just feel so so proud of America for all the all that we did in the middle distances and and the long distances last year So I, I wouldn't say there was any hurt feelings or regret or or anything just uh, you know Just honored to have been a part of it for a decade and were you watching
0: those trials in person? Were you there in Eugene? I was, watching? yeah. Okay.
1: So I have I have many many teammates that were there um, from the Brooks Beast Track Club, and uh, Eugene is is kind of still my second home. Um, I have two houses here and a business, Run Gum, and so I come down here quite often. And I didn't I, I knew it was going to be hard to watch the races, but I I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to experience the Olympic trials from the stands, which I'd never experienced. I've been to three Olympic trials and, and competed in two, and this time I got to have a, a beer in my hand on a warm summer night and watch some really incredible races, and that was an experience that I'd never had, and, and it was a great experience. Okay, so a little bit of Ray of Sunshine on that for you. I, as long as I got a nice IPA in my hand, I'm happy. So it was, it was not where I wanted to be that day. I wanted to be on the track, but... You know, you you can look at it as a, as a glass half empty or as a glass half full, and I, I I did everything I could to look at it as as a as an opportunity to do something I hadn't done before, and that was sit there with my coach and my business partner and, and my best friend Sam Lapray and watch some track and field. So much rides on being ready for you know that one day or
0: that one event like the trials, and that's kind of what's so crazy about. Olympic sports and what you do, it's very different compared to other professional sports like baseball, where you have a season or you have a playoffs. Um, How do you mentally prepare for that one big moment after months and years of training to build up that it's that one day or those couple days to really
1: perform? Yeah, it's totally unforgiving. And you know as with many sports, but but particularly in, in track and field, it, through our olympic trials process um, Being strong mentally is equally or more important than being strong physically and I worked hard I remember in 08 working hard with uh, an old mentor of mine Kelly Sullivan I worked hard in 2012 with a sports psychologist Jeff Troche. and a lot of the Preparation going into a race like that is just learning how to compartmentalize things in your mind learning how to deal with your emotions. You know, so many people beat themselves before they even get to the track just by misallocating their energy and being fretful and nervous and not sleeping the night before a race. And it is a true skill that great athletes have of being able to focus on the competition when they need to and being able to think about other things when it's time not to think about the competition.
0: So when you were kind of learning about those mental ways to to be stronger as a runner, how are you different almost 10 years ago from 2008 when you kind of broke out onto the scene to
1: today or the past few years as a um you know a runner in your 30s. Yeah, I mean 2008 I had made what some would call crazy sacrifices. I had done things that You know, many, many people were telling me, don't do it, don't do it. I I spent, you know, $100,000 on a biochemistry degree at Willamette University. And I said, well, I know I was going to go be a doctor, but I think I'm going to skip that to live like a poor college student for two more years and try to make an Olympic team. And everyone thought I was crazy. I mean, here's this kid uh, from a D3 school, you know, which which, uh, I wasn't even, you know, offered an uh, athletic scholarship because I wasn't very good in high school. And, you know, I was a D3 kid that no one had ever heard of that says, hey, I think I can be top three in the United States in two years. It was ludicrous at the time. Um, and I made so many sacrifices, two years of my life, you know, a lot of, of, of financial sacrifices, time away from home, time away from family, uh, to pursue that dream. And so when I was preparing for the 2008 Olympic trials, it was like, all of this sacrifice, all, all, that, all this hard work, it comes down to a minute and 44 seconds. And it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a sickening thought. And It was really hard to to <clears throat> Deal with those emotions going into it at 30 32. It was like, oh, I'd be kind of cool to make another Olympic team But I have already done that twice and if I don't I still have an awesome business run gum That's gonna pay my bills and it'd be kind of nice to spend a summer with my family to be honest and you know, it's just it's a decade of difference and um, Making an Olympic team in 2016 as cool as that would have been would not have changed my life one bit and and so I guess that's how I approached it mentally, and and um, you know for better or for worse, that's that's just where I'm at in my life. So you said be you know because of the injury and um, kind of you know that perspective you had with it, you, you took the summer off basically, right? Yeah, I, I'm a championship runner. I, I like to win U.S. titles. I like to compete at the World Olympic Games, and I will receive a lot of flack possibly from meet directors and agents, but. All of the other races that you're watching are just glorified practices even when you're watching a pre classic and I love pre classic that is just a glorified practice session so um, the only things that really matter in the sport is championship running in my opinion and so as soon as I knew I wasn't going to compete at the Olympic Games the idea of of Aqua jogging for three hours a day so I could go and run in some no-name meet in Italy in September just didn't really seem real important to me So no, I I said to I said to my family and my friends I said hey, that's my season I don't know if it's my last season. I may come back in 2017 But what I know right now is I need to fix this broken ankle And then I need to enjoy this summer because I'm not going to sit on the couch crying all all this glorious Pacific Northwest summer. And I went out and I caught more fish and I drank more (laughs) beer and I climbed more mountains than I ever have in a summer before. And it was awesome. So, where were you catching fish, where were you climbing mountains, and
0: um, <laughs> we, we can say maybe how much beer you drank, but we'll, we'll focus uh, on the fish was, and mountains. All in
1: moderation, all in moderation, <laughs> yeah. but I'm I so lucky to call the Pacific Northwest home, and I split my time between Seattle and Eugene, and I, uh, I, I love every one of these rivers out here. They're they're so unique, and they have so many really great species of fish, I, and I, if you know me, I love to fish. Um, so I was out uh, out in Forks, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula for a while. Um, I climbed Mount Baker. It's one of the most heavily glaciated peaks in North America, and I spent six days um, navigating the, the glaciers up there, which was a really great experience, something that I'd always wanted to do. I went whale-watching out of Victoria, uh, Canada, um, and it was just a good summer. It was really, really nice to spend time with my family and friends up here.
0: When do you think you actually got back to trying to rehab it and
1: um, see where you were at athletically with your ankle? You know about September 1st mid-september, I got an itch to run again and this was you know I'd taken at this point two or three months off of just hiking and fishing and it it's you know if you're you, everyone listening, you're a runner and you know that itch and you look down at yourself and you've maybe five ten pounds heavy and it's not just that but you just you miss it, you miss. Putting one foot in front of the other and that meditative state that you get into and being out in nature And that's what I missed. It was such a beautiful uh, Summer turning into fall and I wanted to be out on the trails, you know Meditating by by running and so I laced up a new pair of Brooks Adrenaline my favorite sneaker and just started exploring my trails again And it, it was pretty pathetic, but you know by professional running standards to you go only be able to run? three or four miles at, you know, eight or nine minute pace. Um, but that's where I started at. And, and then I slowly started building up my mileage and got the long run back up to 10 or 12 miles. And for an 800 meter runner, that's quite a long run. And it just, it just slowly started clicking. And I, it was probably once I I was fully rehabbed, it was the most consistent fall of training I'd ever had. I ran, um, 50 or so miles a week for 12 straight weeks last fall. And that put me in the kind of shape. To make me wake up on January first and say, "Yeah, I want to try to make one more team." And I announced uh, in the first week of January that 2017 is my last professional season. I think it'll be my 12th professional season. Uh, I and, and I don't know. I don't know if I still have what it takes to make a team. I don't know if this left leg is going to allow me to run 800s like I used to. But I want to give it one last shot, and I'm going to do everything I can to make that team. You know, in reading your note from when you made the announcement that. 2017 was going to be your
0: last go. Um, you can kind of, whether it's reading between the lines or it's in front of you, you know, you kind of mentioned that there were definite seeds of doubt on whether it was worth coming back. And you mentioned you know you had a great, you had a great summer off, um, but then you got that itch back. So, was there an exact time you you knew that like okay, this is my decision.
1: 2017 is going to be it. Yeah. It was a conversation I had with my main sponsor Brooks and they've been so amazing and they have supported me uh, When when other companies wouldn't support me and and through ups and downs and injuries and success and US titles and everything They've been there for me and it was a decision we made together uh, You know I sat down with my coach Danny Mackey and I sat down with their head of sports marketing Jesse Williams I said guys, what do you think? I mean, I can go either way with this one um, I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying life not running, but I do miss the track and, and they both said, you know, We know what you have in your leg still and more importantly they said the Nick Simmons legacy doesn't end with an injury It it ends it it ends on the track and and so that's our plan this year I want to go out swinging at the US championships this year Is that is that realistic at this point or like where are you at in your training? Well, Brian, let me tell you this. I've made every single team that I've ever tried out for that's two Olympic teams five world outdoor teams and two world indoor teams if I can get my legs to USA's healthy I always find a way to make the team But as we've seen last year as we saw in 2014 it's getting a lot harder for me to get to USA's healthy And this year I, I am planning on going into USA's at about 75 or 80 percent fitness With the hope that that leads to hundred percent health because I, like I said if I can get there healthy um don't bet against me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my plan.
0: Right. So when you say 75 to 80% going into USAs, um what does that mean for you? What what are you doing differently that will keep you injury free throughout sure, the year and get question. there? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I was doing 60 miles a week last year um in six no I was doing it in eight runs. So I trained Monday through Saturday. Um, and I doubled a couple days a week. I can't do doubles anymore. My body needs twenty-four hours to recover. And I'm I'm as I'm getting older, I'm learning that. And, I, and I'm sure there's gonna come a point where I need forty-eight hours to recover. And that's okay. Um, you know, I have twenty years worth of running in these legs, so getting out there and eking out every last mile just isn't necessary. I, I think I can still make a team off fifty miles a week, but that's where I'm at. I I have this left ankle and it is it is deteriorated from twenty years of of running hard turns and it's gonna have a a Half a roll of kinesio tape holding it together, but I'm gonna do everything I can to step on that track and it won't be pretty It's not gonna be a 143 that I like to run when I'm fit But if I can get a 148 out of the way early on a 146 somewhere before USA's That's exactly what I went into USA's in 2015 with a 146 five season best and uh, I ran two second season best to win USA's that year. So, there's something about USA's, there's something about championship running. I don't know if it's adrenaline. It gets I don't you know going. It gets me going, I get excited to race. When you spoke with us right after the announcement that you
0: were gonna come back for one more pro year, um, you did mention the Aaron Strout that you have two goals for after that. One was climbing mountains, and you've kind of already talked about that, and the other one was running a marathon in 2018. I wanna start with the first thing, um, when you say you want to climb more mountains, so like what are the goals there with? Uh, what mountains do you want to get on?
1: You know, it's funny I actually set a goal for myself when I was 10 years old I, I was an Eagle Scout in Idaho and I, I climbed everything in Idaho My goal was to climb the tallest mountain on every continent. It is called the seven summits It's a feat that's only been done by a handful of humans um, And and I put that goal on the back burner to become a runner to be the best runner I could be I started running a few years later and that has been my number one focus for the last two decades. But now that running is about to come to an end, I want to go back and and honor that goal that I set for myself when I was a kid, and, and really start pursuing this this idea of climbing the tallest mountain on every continent. You know, Everest obviously being the tallest mountain in Asia would be, would be the um, the the summation of a of a career of mountain climbing. So it's a lifetime goal. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in two or three years. It will take, um, you know, the better part of a decade to accomplish. But if I am able to, I will be the first human being to ever break four in the mile and stand on top of Mount Everest, which I think would be pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I, I can't think of many more people who could uh, claim that, or maybe in the future who'd be going for that. I don't know. Either. Yeah, you
1: know, it's, it it takes two. It's it's two totally different systems. You you just could set a, you run, could set a bar. I would like to. It's a dream of mine. <laughs> and and the marathon. You said you want to do a
0: marathon in 2018. I believe you said with the goal of running under three hours. It's a little bit longer than the 800 that you run, but you do uh, yeah. you do you do long runs
1: on the weekend. Um, you said, um, but wh- what race do you think you would want to do? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about all the running goals I ever set for myself, and I have ticked pretty much every one of them. I crossed them off the list. The only one that I've set for myself that I've never done is run a marathon. And as an 800 meter runner, it's it's one of those things that's mutually exclusive with the kind of training that I do. I can't be in marathon shape or risk getting injured running a marathon and and give the 800, you know, all the respect that it deserves. So now that I see my last 800 taking place in the next few months, I start thinking, all right, well, there's still that, that marathon, you know, left on the list and you know, what could I run and where would I run it? And, um, you know, if it was me, I'd do something crazy. I'd go to Pyongyang and run it in North Korea, or I would go run it in the Himalayas at 16,000 feet or watching Ryan Hall run down in Antarctica made me want to go run down there. But <laughs> seven the marathons reality, in seven days, yeah, right? it's yeah. amazing. I, I, all I wanted to do was go run a marathon with him. But I think the reality is I, I want to know what a marathon major is like. So, um, you know, I, I will I will pick one of the majors and I will I will make one of them. Um, not only my marathon debut, but probably the only marathon that i ever run. because <laughs> It's gonna take everything I got to get through 26.2 miles. Obviously, so well known at the
0: 800, a two-time Olympian there, six-time U.S. Outdoor Champion, silver medalist in 2013 um, at the World Championships. But over the past several years, you've been just as interesting off the track, kind of like this lightning rod when it comes to um, dealing with the big players in running and track and field, namely, Nike, uh, USATF. Um, you know, you've done stuff like auction off your arm for a tattoo. Um, you went against Rule Forty this year um, before the Olympics, and people don't know what that is. It's a policy designed to protect the rights of Olympic sponsors. Um, back in 2015, uh, you refused to sign the USATF athlete agreement at the time um, because um you would have to wear nike gear even maybe when you were getting coffee instead of wearing brooks apparel which is your sponsor um so you know you've done a lot to be outspoken to like help the sport as you think it needs help um has the fight been worth it
1: for you over the past several years yeah but not not for why you think it's been worth it so <laughs> some people say well how much were you really able to accomplish and and we were able to accomplish some massive massive goals and bring about you know public attention to some of these issues wrestle some of the power away from USATF and, and put it back in the, in the hands of the athletes. Like, for example, the athlete agreement, that ha- that's changed, right, a it's little bit? It's been rewritten, absolutely. And and there's increased revenue sharing with the athletes. And um, when, at US championships, I'm able to wear my Run Gum tattoos, I'm able to wear my billboard size Brooks logo, and that makes me really happy. But, you know, of all those battles, add them all up, it's still not the reason why I would say it was absolutely worth it. It was worth it because it fired me up it put a chip on my shoulder and I woke up every morning and those days that I didn't want to Train I say no, no, I, I have to give it everything I have today because the better I run The the louder it is when I say, you know f you USATF stop stealing from the athletes and That's what fueled me the last three or four years when I was young I just wanted to see how good I could be because I I wanted to prove to the world what I knew in my heart and once I did that in 2008 and again in 2012 and again in 2013, when I won a world silver, you know, after you've done those kinds of things, there has to be something else that gets you out of bed. And for the last three years, it's been about trying to change the sport for the better. You know, my business partner, my, my mentor, Sam LaPray, he's been right by my side the whole time supporting me. And, uh, everything that we've done in the last three years has been about trying to make this amazing sport of track and field better than, than when we found it. And, Unfortunately, there's some very very greedy people that control um, the majority of this sport and they don't want to see anything change because it's making them filthy rich Meanwhile over 50% of professional track and field athletes live below the poverty line and that's just unacceptable You know Max Siegel who was recently I think as Washington Post came out and said that he makes 1.7 million dollars As the CEO of USATF while the majority of the people making the money for him, you know IE the athletes are living below the poverty line absolutely unacceptable
0: and you see this continuing to be a fight after you're done running as a professional in
1: 2017. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I always thought, you know, when I get done running, I, I won't really have a voice anymore because I won't have this platform. It's quite the opposite. Once I'm done running, I have nothing but time and energy and hopefully money to continue to fight these battles. You know, we have a pending lawsuit. Mm-hmm. My company, RunGum, has a lawsuit pending against USATF and USOC. Um, that alleges that they are not only stealing money from the athletes, you know, in my opinion, but that they're in fact violating U.S. antitrust law in in the way that their rules are written, um, and you know that's going to go to uh, to court here um, in appellate court later this year, and um, I, I really believe, uh, and and my lawyer believes that they are violating U.S. antitrust law. When you made the announcement to come back in
0: 2017, um, Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated had a really nice piece. Um, and he called you the most forceful agitator since Steve Prefontaine. When when you hear that, does that does that make you proud, or do you do you feel
1: that way? I like the term forceful agitator. It's very <laughs> kind of him. I've been called a pain in the butt and a lot worse. So forceful agitator is very nice. I I feel embarrassed to be mentioned even in the same sentence as Steve Prefontaine. He was uh, more charismatic, uh, more talented runner, and. Uh, you know braver than i'll ever be and and he's been a hero of mine from day one when i first learned about uh you know who, who this kid from coos bay was i do share the desire uh that athletes should be paid what they're worth and i think steve understood that and he he tried to wrestle power away from the aau and it's what allowed um olympians to start making money eventually you know in the 1980s was, excuse me, in 1978 when the Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act was passed, it was because of the fight that Steve started. And and here we are 30 years later, and I think that if Steve Prefontaine saw the state of the sport, he would be absolutely sick to his stomach. That the powers that be still control the money, they toss scraps to the athlete and let the athletes fight over him. and. People are getting filthy rich on the hard work of these these men and women who want nothing more than to be paid a fair wage and represent their country at the highest level of international competition. And, you know, I've seen it from both angles. I've seen it from an athlete who's trying to pursue sponsors. I've seen it as a company that wants to sponsor athletes. Every single dollar that exchanges hands is expected to go through USATF and IAAF and USOC, and any time the governing bodies get their hands on those dollars, you you better believe there's very few that come out the other end. You you really have a
0: mentality as um, a fighter to like c- continue pushing on. Where do you think that mindset kind of came from? Whether it's on the track, um, you know, you said you were a, a D three runner, um, probably no expectations to get where you were. A lot of people probably thought that. And then off the track to to fight the big players
1: in the sport. Did that come from somewhere? I think my parents raised me. Um, you know, they're my mom and dad. They're amazing people. They're very stubborn, and I think that their stubbornness and their persistence probably wore off on me. And and that part of my character was attracted to Sam LaPrey, who's a very stubborn, persistent man in business and in life. And you know, I went from from this incredible home in Boise, Idaho, being raised by Jeff and Andrea Simmons to Willamette University, where I teamed up with Coach Sam, who's been my mentor and business partner and, and coach for the last almost two decades now. And, you know, it, it's it's people see me as this, this agitator, this stubborn guy that just won't quit. You want to know how many times I quit? I've thrown in the towel hundreds of times. I, I mean, I, I literally quit track and field dozens of times while I was in college. But I always had great people around me whether it was my mom and dad or whether it was coach Sam that kept saying no We're not done yet. We're not done yet And likewise, you know coach Sam's quit a couple times and I said no coach. We're not done yet and and I think that people Who work hard who understand that? Perseverance is all that separates those who are successful from those who aren't if they if they get if they team up together the, the things that they're able to create are absolutely incredible and um, you know, I look at my mom and dad who've been married 35 years. Um, that's, that's hard work and perseverance and that's two people working hard together. The things that Sam and I have been able to create, whether it's seven NCAA titles, um, two Olympic teams, eight world championship teams or run gum, you know, a, a company that's absolutely revolutionizing the energy market. There have been a lot of times where we have had obstacles, but we've persevered together through those obstacles. And I really do believe that it's, it's an understanding of. That uh, that hard work and perseverance will overcome everything, and then and then surrounding yourself with the right people that help you persevere. A couple more things on this topic. Um, I think of
0: uh, the Olympics in 2016. Um, were you impressed with runners like Jenny Simpson and Emma Coburn? They were they were kind of um, sly in how they dealt with Rule 40 um, being um, New Balance runners. Um, I don't know if you caught them. They would they put their shoes yeah, over their it. shoulder. Absolutely. Like, do, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> How you know were you excited to see stuff like that
1: really excited and and it's you know, it's a small step in the right direction um, and, and more athletes are going to have to do things like that, but <clears throat> the fact that an athlete like Emma Jenny who who New Balance is paying massive sums of money uh, to represent their their company and, and and they should be because they're these girls are fantastic um, endorsers uh, the fact that they go to the Super Bowl of track and field, right? The the one time every four years where the world stops and pays attention, and they're not even allowed to mention new balance by name, that that is insane. So let me let me put it this way. I'm the CEO of, of a sports supplement company called Run Gum. We have bit we have a sizable marketing budget. And it would it would make me so happy. I would be so honored to give back to the sport of track and field by sponsoring as many athletes as I can. But where is the return on investment? if I'm the one helping them get to the games, if I'm the one paying their bills and and their coach's salary and and uh, getting them to and from track meets, that when they finally make it to the Olympic team, the team that I helped them make, they're not allowed to mention my company by name. There's no return on investment for me. And companies like McDonald's, companies like Starbucks, companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook with billions of dollars in mar- in, in marketing budgets, they know that, that themselves. And there's absolutely no return uh, to invest in an athlete when they get to the Super Bowl and they can't you can't connect your brand to them and more and more shoe companies are starting to realize that and in my professional opinion this is the bleakest economic situation that we have ever faced in in the world of professional running um, Olympic finalists right now have been cut from their contracts uh three months later because there is no almost no money in it for professional track and field athletes anymore so one final thing on
0: this then um Let's say everything plays out um, ideally for you this year. Um, You run great at the U.S. Championships. You make the world team. Um, As we mentioned in 2015, um, you didn't you didn't join the team because of um, the athletes' agreement. That's changed. But would would you try to make a statement again, um, like you did the last time on the world team, Um, or because it's the last, you know, you're saying it's your last year? Would you um, abide by that a little bit differently?
1: Well, one, I haven't read the new uh, statement of conditions, So first, I'd certainly read through it. And I would certainly have my lawyer read through it, which I know almost no athletes do. Um, but you you can't trust your your, uh, your, agent to necessarily always work in your best interest. So I would have a read through. I would have my lawyer have a read through. And if it worked for everybody and it protected everybody's uh, you know, rights and interests, then I'd have no problem signing it. Uh, if I read through it and I felt that USATF was continuing to tread upon, upon the rights of athletes, you better believe I'd speak out. So you would give up a a chance at the Worlds again, like you did in 2015,
0: even in your last year?
1: Absolutely. I mean, at this point, I've competed at at six, well, five World Championships uh, outdoors and two World Indoors uh, championships. I don't need to go to another one. I want to prove that I can make a team, mainly just because I want to see if I can do it. I want to see if my 33-year-old legs can still do it. Yeah, and it sounds like it probably helps that you have something
0: that you're invested in now outside of running. Um, You you mentioned it several times now, but Run Gum, um, if people don't know, Caffeinated Gum, um, it's your business now, you're the CEO. Um, But what was the spark for creating it for you, for people who've never heard the story?
1: Yeah, it was absolute necessity. Um, I was competing um, and traveling and trying to compete at the very highest level of our sport and I was always looking for that that little something to give me the extra edge I mean in the men's 800 winning and losing can come down to a tenth of a second or a quarter of a second So, you know, even a 1% boost in performance could equal a full second for me. It's massive um, And I found that what energy drinks companies were doing they kind of really nailed it they, they had found this combination of stimulants that were really Exactly what I needed to get this increased energy and focus and so I would gulp down a heavy acidic calorie rich energy drink And then I would go run and I would more often than not throw it up I have this degree in biochemistry that I got at and I knew that all of those active ingredients could be absorbed through absorbed through the lining of the mouth Um, But there had to be a delivery vehicle Uh, And I I just I was watching this commercial for Nicorette and I'm like, that's it functional chewing gum Gum is the delivery vehicle and so we took everything that's in an energy drink and put it into two pieces of chewing gum Caffeine taurine, B vitamins to give you an immediate boost in energy and focus But there's no sugar no calories and nothing to drink because when I want energy. I'm not thirsty I just want the energy that is run gum. We're in over 500 locations throughout the United States We sell on Amazon And you can buy it direct from us at RunGum.com, where we have a lot of resources for people from dietary um, information to my own personal training log is hosted there, my blog's hosted there. So we're not only trying to fuel people with this performance enhancing product, but we're also trying to inspire them uh, with the resources and the kind of content that we put out on social media at RunGum. So what's, what's harder being a professional
0: runner or a CEO of a startup yeah. company that you, you know, you really have to heavily market like a new business. So what's really harder for you?
1: What's hardest is doing both at the same time. <laughs> I think it's pretty easy to be a runner and just train all day and sleep all the rest of the time. I think it's, it's pretty, it's not easy, but it's fun and it's exciting to be a CEO and, and to build something, trying to do both simultaneously, um, means I'm working 16 hour days, which I don't mind because I like to stay busy, but they're both uniquely challenging. And I think, I think I found kind of found this, this sweet spot. I feel like every day has purpose. I wake up and I get to run. And when I run, I feel, you know, very physically challenged. And then I go into the office and I I have to try to figure out how to make these deals happen. Um, and and how to get the world to understand that, that run gum is the better choice. And if I could spend the rest of my life training for a physical, for a physical race or competition or feat, and uh, and building businesses, it would be a it would be a beautiful life, and that's exactly what mm. I intend to do. I want to climb mountains, and then I want to run marathons, and I want to I want to run an Ironman one day, and all the while I'll be building Run Gum and, and maybe another business in some other day. So it
0: sounds like you get the same kind of rush um, out of doing business deals as you do trying to make a kick in the the final
1: like two hundred of an eight hundred meter race. Definitely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a full fledged adrenaline junkie and, uh, whether it's in business in a really high intensity meeting or whether it's on the track, um, in a race that was really important to me, I I like when something's on the line, It, it makes it mean more. And when things mean more, there's pressure. And when there's pressure, I respond. So, you know, having, having business where my, where I have my own skin in the game or having a race where I've, I've put countless hours of hard work and sacrifice into it. I like having something on the line. That was my
0: conversation with entrepreneur, advocate, and elite middle distance runner, Nick Simmons. He'll be gunning for the world's team at the USATF Outdoor Championships in Sacramento this month. The meet starts on June 22nd. Next up, a running routine that is anything but routine. We here at Runner's World are currently on the 11th day of our annual summer run streak. For 37 days from Memorial Day to the 4th of July, we're running at least one mile a day. It's a great way to keep us on track or at least in maintenance mode between spring racing and the start of fall training. And while we're mighty proud of running 37 days in a row, it's a great accomplishment. We're well aware that pales compared to what some streakers are doing out in the world. Streakers like the Walt family producer Joanna Clay takes us to Huntington Beach, California to meet the Walt family, where the running streak has a long history.
2: Nolan Wall is running a mile around his old elementary school, just across the street from his house.
3: What are you guys all at? 8, 9, two, 8, eight. eight, nine, Point eight. Nine for me, 0.91. One,
2: nine, He's running with his mom, Jennifer, and his brother, Conrad. It's a Sunday. It's also day 1,382 of Nolan's running streak. That's right, streak.
3: The Walt boys have been running a mile a day every day for four years. Or I've been having the streak for almost a third of my life now, so I really can't imagine when I didn't have the streak. A third of
2: Nolan's life. Think about it. When they started, they were both in elementary school. Now Nolan is 13, about to start 8th grade. Conrad is 15 and in high school. Conrad says now it's something he just feels he has to do.
4: At this point, it's definitely part of my identity. It's almost like an addiction of sorts. Like, you have to go out and run. You have to do it.
2: The streak is a family affair. Their dad, John, once had a 9-month running streak. But their mom, Jennifer, is really the family star. After getting a Garmin watch for Christmas one year, she got hooked on tracking her workouts and seeing how many days in a row she could run. And she's run every day now for more than five years. She's the one who inspired Nolan and Conrad to start their own streak. Four years ago, the boys decided to run every day during the summer. When they got through it, they just kept going. Jennifer says their sibling rivalry helps.
5: I think if it was just one of them, it might be easier to stop, but now... If one stops, then the other still keeps going, then they've got one up on the other one. Nolan took to running quickly. He loves it.
3: Um, yeah, it makes me feel like there's something unique about me that I do that's no, really, hardly anyone else my age does.
2: Of the two brothers, Nolan is the more focused and self-disciplined. Conrad is the social butterfly, the Instagrammer. Sometimes the burden of maintaining the streak weighs on Conrad more, But more often, he says it helps him.
4: I'll feel like I'll be like super emotional and I go out and run and I'll be completely normal like eight minutes later when I come back. So it's become an outlet for me for a lot of things.
2: Managing to run every day, no matter what, takes dedication and sometimes some help planning on Jennifer's part.
5: There was one time Nolan was getting ready. It was a school night, I think. He was getting ready to go to bed and all of a sudden I just looked at him. I said, Nolan, did you run today? And he had this big look on his face. His eyes got really big. Oh, crap. (laughs) And he rushed and put his running clothes on and he went out and ran a mile. And again, I followed him on the bike. (laughs)
2: On a trip one time, the family had an early flight to catch. So Jennifer woke the boys up at 4 a.m. to do laps around the hotel.
5: In those kind of situations, sometimes we'll sleep in the running clothes already, especially them. So in the morning, all you have to do is throw your shoes on.
2: They even manage to keep the streak alive on their annual backpacking trips along the John Muir Trail, which stretches from Yosemite to Mount Whitney. It's the peak of summer, usually, July or August, and it can get up to 80 degrees. In just one day of the trip, they might hike up to 16 miles. So Jennifer tries to get their mile out of the way early, while it's still cool. She'll find a flat section of trail, and then, in their hiking boots and long pants, they take off running. She says hikers look at them like they're crazy.
5: You've got other hikers out there sometimes looking at you like, "Why are they running? What's wrong?" So that looks kind of weird.
2: One of these trips was enough to kill John streak, but not theirs. And for the boys, the streak may feel like work at times, but the upshot, it ignited a passion for running. This is Conrad.
4: Honestly, I'm not sure if I'd be a running competitor if you had the streak, because that's like, that's what got me into it. Like in middle school, like I was, oh, I was running every day. Like I'm good enough shape to go start track. So. Honestly, I might still be playing baseball if I was doing a streak. I was doing another sport. I'd be, like, doing bad things. I don't know. Just kind of—it's really changed who I am as a person since I first started it when I think about it.
3: For Nolan, the running streak has helped fuel some big dreams. My real goal in life is to invent something that changes the world. But also being a professional runner is pretty high up there. And for Jennifer, running has become a way to bond with her sons. It's something
2: special they share.
5: Conrad did his first half marathon on my 50th birthday. It just happened that there was a half marathon on my birthday, and he, um, I said, can we wear matching shirts? And he said, yeah. I said, what color? He said, whatever color you want, mom. So he wore a pink shirt for me. (laughs) So you're probably wondering, what if the streak ends? It's going to end, right? I always try to tell the kids that you know, so it's not the end of the world, and. it will end and hopefully you get to start up again. But the boys don't like to think about that.
3: Here's Nolan. For me, that's sort of a depressing thought because I can't imagine like four years or however long going to waste when I end it. It just, I really can't imagine stopping my streak.
2: Nolan leads me on a tour of his room, which he shares with Conrad. They sleep in a bunk bed,
3: Nolan the bottom, Conrad the top.
2: A lot of trophies. Yeah, what's happening there?
3: Oh, that was a photo my brother took of me um, jumping off a bridge in New Hampshire into the water.
2: (laughs) That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm.
3: Both of them have dozens of medals hung up near the head of their beds. They're from local races, 5Ks, half marathons, track and field. Oh, sometimes at night my cat will go and walk by them and hit them all and they'll all clank together like this. (laughs) And that's sort of annoying, but it doesn't happen that often. The
2: medals hang off wooden plaques. Each of them has one, kind of at the front of their bunk bed. Both of them are painted with quotes from Steve Prefontaine, the Olympian and running phenom who died tragically at the age of 24. They were Christmas gifts from their parents. It's hard to
4: read the quote on Conrad's, so he climbs up to his bunk, pushing away medals to get a better look. Success isn't how far you got, but the distance you traveled from where you started, Steve Prefontaine. It's just one of the great quotes he had of that running, how it relates to life.
2: That's pretty applicable to what you guys are doing, right? Yeah, definitely.
4: I mean, that streak, it's like how far, yeah. That's a really good point. I never thought of it that way. In for now, the Walt boys keep
2: running. 1,382 days and counting. But even if one day their streak ends, they've traveled so far from where they've started.
0: That was producer Joanna Clay talking with the Walt family about their tradition of streaking. By the way, in case you're interested, the current record for a running streak is held by John Sutherland of West Hills, California. As of this recording, the 66-year-old has run at least a mile a day for, get this, 17,543 days. And if you don't want to do that math, that's over 48 years of consecutive running that's just mind-boggling if you want to join our streak here at runner's world it's not too late check out runnersworld.com audio for more information coming up in the kick the training secrets to help you nail a 5k pr Alrighty, and now it's time for the kick. This week I'm joined by our food and nutrition editor, Heather Mayer Irvin. Heather, thanks for joining us.
6: Always a pleasure, Brian.
0: And I had to bring you down because um, last week a story really blew up, and it was in a recent issue of the magazine when we just put it online, and it really resonated with people. One, because I think we've talked a lot about marathons, and we always talk a lot about marathons, but... Your story specifically was on the 5K and, you know, this summer, it's a time to maybe think about getting a little faster and the story just kind of hit the right point. So for people who haven't seen the story that went online last week, tell us a little bit about this 5K journey that you went on.
6: Well, I was amazed that it did as well as it did. Um, I'm-, I'm not. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, But kind of what you said, we have this marathon fatigue and, you know, among runners, it's kind of that the marathon, the half marathon is the pinnacle when really, you know, you can run really fast, shorter distances and it can be impressive. And I thought about it. And after Boston last year, um, I decided I want to focus on the short distance. And I had set a PR just a couple weeks after Boston uh, in 2040, and I thought, okay, if I train, I can break 20 minutes.
0: So you got to that 2040. How big of a PR was it at that point? That
6: was by two seconds, but it was probably like a year, maybe even two years old, and it was coming off of a marathon. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right.
0: Okay, so the goal and the point of the story is, can Heather get under 20 minutes for the 5K. Um, so just take people on a little bit of what your training plan looked like leading up to that and how is that different from what you did before?
6: So I'd never trained for a 5K before. Um, and I thought, you know, if I focus, I can do this. So I took Runner's World Break 20 plan as a template and I'm notorious for Changing plans, all train
0: plans all the time. Plans. I think I did that for my marathon training. Yeah. Well,
6: I think we all do, to a degree. To what works for us. And I ended up running about the same mileage as I run when I train for marathons—thirty to five, thirty-five to forty, which is not a lot for marathon training. But I don't run a lot of mileage, and I did a lot of speed work. I did two speed sessions a week, um, focusing on you know five k paces of nineteen fifty or faster and you know my long runs were only 12 miles which was awesome um, mm-hmm. and i don't i did not miss the 15 16 20 milers uh, and i just really liked that speed you know that speed work and i was done 90 minutes that's yeah. my longest workout
0: great like like that perfect point on a run you're not going to feel dead you'll feel pretty good for the workout. You
6: can have two breakfasts (laughs) instead of three. You
0: can still have the two breakfasts. Um, So the big question though, um, not to give away the story, you should still check it out, (laughs) but uh, your goal race was at our Runner's World half and festival So the 5K um, last October, Um, what happened? How did you do? Drumroll.
6: I finished in 1946.
0: So that's, I mean, that's almost a full minute off of that previous PR.
6: I had going into the race, you know, I kind of thought, well, our course is really hilly. It, it is yeah, it really is. hilly. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. It's, you know, 50 seconds. But I just kept telling myself, you know, the training showed that you can do it. Don't literally don't be a wuss is what I told mm-hmm. myself. I knew that it was going to hurt. And I didn't wear an editor shirt. I didn't <laughs> want anyone talking to me. I needed to just focus. And it was probably the best race finish I've ever had. I was just so overcome with like, wow, I did it. I gave Bud a hug, he was right there. He showed him my watch. It was, it was really, really great.
0: So if you had one secret, what do you think it would be that you learned in that process?
6: It's the mental game, honestly. And I, I tell you know, my friends this and people who ask, oh, I couldn't you know, say, I couldn't do this. When your training shows that you can hit certain splits, there's nothing holding you back, assuming you're healthy and you get some decent weather. And so I just kept telling myself, there's no reason why you can't do this. Just suck it up, it's going to hurt, and you'll be done in 20 minutes.
0: So like when you saw that first mile split, you realized, look, I can maintain this, I should be able to hold this, that you didn't freak out like I would if I had a super fast like first mile split on a 5 K. <laughs>
6: no, the first mile, I was aiming for 6.26 per mile, and the first mile was 6.17, the second was 6.18. The third was 6.30. Not that you kept track. Not that I kept track. The third was 6.30, so it really was about going out and just holding on.
0: So we'll have a link to the Break 20 plan on runnersworld.com slash audio on our show page. Check it out there. You can run super fast like Heather. (laughs) Um, So let's move on to our next story. We're going back up to a, a longer distance, the half marathon. We had a pretty incredible record that was broken this past weekend at the Rock and Roll San Diego Half Marathon.
6: Yeah, and it involves an older runner an older and runner. a record, so it's mm, in the kick. Of course. Uh, Brian, tell us about Harriet Thompson. So
0: Harriet Thompson, um, she's 94 years <laughs> old, Heather from North Carolina. She, This is actually another record for her. Um, she became the oldest woman to run a half marathon overall um, when she finished... At the Rock and Roll Half Marathon in San Diego, her time three hours, forty-two minutes, and fifty-six seconds. So, wow. congratulations to her. Previously, the um, the oldest woman to do um, a half marathon was ninety-three. So, spring one, chicken. Yeah
6: but she has a really cool backstory too.
0: Yeah, um, in fact, she's a two-time cancer survivor. She ran for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's team in training, so she had a reason to run too. Um, She's run the San Diego race a lot since 1999, 16 times according to the San Diego Union-Tribune. So, um, and in that time, she's raised over $100,000. So on top of that, (laughs) she's like a great fundraiser. Um, and the other record that i mentioned at 92 harriet so became <laughs> yeah 2 years ago harriet became the oldest woman to complete a full marathon in 7 hours and 24 minutes I mean, i know that record still there, stands
6: i think it's going to stand for a while <laughs> for a I mean, a I, bit. we know people who are you know, in their 30s 40s 50s who are running 7 hour marathons mm-hmm. it's just she's incredible
0: yeah so again congratulations to harriet on that impressive achievement
6: And something she said in a press release issued by The Race just really made me smile, maybe because it reminds me of my grandmother. She says, I could hear my name being shouted the whole way. I suppose I'm a legacy, at least that's what they say. And that just, I love her. Yeah. Maybe she'll be my grandmother.
0: Awesome, awesome. So we started with the 5K with you and Harriet doing the half marathon. Now another kind of wonky record at the marathon distance. Um, This happened a couple... Weeks back, but we are discussing it a lot as a staff because of the logistics involved in this race. Um, at the Calgary Marathon a couple weeks back, um, 112 runners broke a record as they were linked together. This is, of course, a Guinness World Record for most runners linked to complete a marathon. <laughs> um, of course, the application is in the process, and you know it might be a couple months before it's verified, but in all likelihood, it seems like everything's in order. So this race sounds like fun.
6: Not for me. It sounds like torture. <laughs> or
0: torture. Yeah, exactly. Um, Tell everybody what the time was for these 112 linked runners.
6: So they were targeting 630. They had mm-hmm. to get under 630, and they ran in 624.56, so they had plenty of time. Plenty
0: of time under the mark that they needed. Um, We mentioned the logistics of this, which again, we always had a lot of questions anytime this story came up leading into the race. I think they actually wanted 150 runners to do this, but they they settled for 112. So they had to like kind of run in pods because you can't have people stretched yeah. out across the course. That's one of those poor race etiquette things that we've talked about before on the kick. Um, and you, when you have that many people, you have to communicate by things like radios and you have to plan your stops, specifically your bathroom breaks. Yeah, that's
6: something I think the staff and most runners, <laughs> that's their first question well, mm-hmm. how do they go to the bathroom?
0: Yeah, because you can't like divert. You can't be... No. I'll <laughs> have to be around the same Hold time. Hold on,
6: we got someone back here. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. They had three pre-planned bathroom breaks, and according to the story uh, we put up about this, and you can actually see some of the video of them working together as a team, they took these 15-minute pit stops and everything kind of went to plan there. I think the only struggle was it was like a really hot day at this Calgary Marathon, and uh, when you're out on the course for you know over six hours, you know there's some dehydration or... You have some first time marathoners that were working through it, but they were they were able to do it.
6: It's impri- not something I would want to do, but it's
0: <laughs> impressive. Um, the group that backed all these 112 runners actually backed uh, another world record attempt that day. Um, 10 women went for the fastest marathon by a linked team female record. They did it in 328. So a full progression of every race is kind of like you you should progress. Try 5K then do a half marathon. Then do a full marathon in your set,
6: and then go back down and now go for speed.
0: Exactly, that's what I'm doing. That's what Heather is doing. So thanks for joining us. I also want to um, mention, I I told him I would say this, ran with a guy for about 21, 22 miles at my marathon on May 28th.
6: Oh yeah, you crushed that marathon, didn't you?
0: Yeah, but he did it a little bit better. He was his second time marathon. His name is Lucas Barton. He's actually emailed into the show before. Um, And he said he thought he recognized my voice as we ran together (laughs) for most of the race. He broke three. So congratulations to Lucas. That was his goal. Um, He emailed me later in the day. He's like, I thought it was you. So um, we're out in the world if you ever see us. Out on the race courses. That happened to me once. Yeah, it's it's getting a little weird, but okay. you know we love to like run with people out at these races. So really, just thanks to all of our listeners out there. We we love getting your emails and we love just hearing from you at any point, whether it's you know while we're in the studio or out at a race. You but are. just don't call Heather during her 5K. Don't.
6: She that won't be it. very nice. She
0: will not talk to you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Brian. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, Once again, thanks to everybody who's given us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really helps the show. I'm your host, Brian Dalek. This week's episode was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Joanna Clay, and me. Be sure to join us next week where we bring you an interview with elite runner Kara Goucher. You won't want to miss it. See you next week.